Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered about how and when to use a spring joint? Do you need to camber a plain iron, but you don't have a grinder? Are you confused by all the different names for the various bench planes? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 23 of the show for April 4th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank our new patrons, Jeff Mertz, Alex Young, Paul Joins, and Christopher Steenbach. Thank you for signing up on Patreon to support the show, and thanks to all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. If you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking, and if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the show as my special way of saying thanks. And I'd also like to thank Ed Savinsky as well for his generous donation that he made through PayPal. Ed, thank you for your generosity as well. So not too much going on recently in the shop. I did take a break from the shop and the house to uh, travel back up north to uh, New Jersey to spend some time with uh, family for Easter. Um, and I did start on a, another new workbench. I, I don't remember if I mentioned that last show or not, but I'm gonna. I've got some leftover pine slabs from uh, from my cabin build, some six by sixes and four by tens and and such. And uh, they're pretty much perfect size to to use for some workbench parts. So I'm gonna be making uh, another workbench. Um, so I'll uh, I'll be posting more about that on the blog as uh, as that progresses along. So uh, today's show is probably going to be fairly brief because uh, I've got some things going on that I've got to get to. So let's get right into our questions. So our first question is from uh, patron Arcadius Chakowski, and he says, I'm, I'll be trying my hand at some timber framing, and I already have a multitude of hand tools I use for furniture making. I was wondering which of them can be transferred to working with greenwood, which which might need some adjustments for example, more set on a saw or different cutting angle and which I might need to buy specifically for the task. So I can't say that I've done a ton of timber framing myself. I I have done some pretty big mortises uh, with the cabin. Um, But for the most part, in terms of working with green wood, I found that most of the tools that I already use for for furniture work work just fine for green wood. Uh, A couple of things, if you use marking gauges like the tight mark, um, you know, or, or a gauge that uses a knife, um, I would suggest picking up a gauge that uses a pin, just a scratching pin. Greenwood doesn't respond real well to gauges um, with knife lines. The, uh, the knife tends to split the grain, and then as the gauge passes by, the grain just kind of closes up behind it, and you kind of lose your, your mark. Um, a good scratching pin in a, you know, with a pin gauge is going to leave kind of a fuzzy line behind. It's going to make it much easier to find and, and see your mark. So um, I would suggest using an old-fashioned pin-style marking gauge for green wood. I think they uh, they tend to work the best in green wood. 
Uh, in terms of, of other tools, you mentioned uh, more set on a saw. That's certainly a possibility depending on the type of wood you're, you're using you, and how wet it actually is. You may need to add a little bit more set to some of your saws. I would say try and use them and just see how they work. Um, and if they tend to be binding up, then add a little bit more set. But I wouldn't go um, doing it ahead of time. See if you need to do it first. Um, in terms of some other tools, you might want to look for some longer chisels, some longer framing chisels. Um, I was doing some mortises up in the cabin for some guardrail posts, and the mortises were about five inches deep. And what I was finding is the chisels that I had for the task are kind of short, my my regular bench chisels for uh, for furniture work. I found them to be, you know, a little bit too short for mortises that are so deep. And for timber framing, you know, you're going to be getting into four, five, six inch deep mortises. So I would say, see if you can find yourself a chisel or two that's nice and long. And, uh, and that's going to help you out quite a bit. Um, you know, and, uh, an ax, a good ax comes in handy, hatchet, um, you know, doing, doing timber work and, and green work. Um, I certainly like to have an axe for hewing and, and squaring things off and, and helping to clean up surfaces. Um, the other thing I will recommend is a wooden plane instead of an iron plane, um, especially if you're working with any type of green wood that is high in tannin content. Um, I have a, a friend that, uh, you know, we were building some joint stools. We started with some green oak and he left his Lee Nielsen smoothing plane sitting on that piece of green oak overnight and came back the next day to find a absolutely corroded mess. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I believe it was one of the uh, Lee Nielsen bronze planes as well. So you think bronze doesn't oxidize, doesn't corrode, leave it on a piece of green oak overnight and see what happens. Uh, you know, there's a lot of tannic acid in oak. Um, certain pines have a lot of tannins in them. So if you're going to be working with um, any type of wood that has a lot of, of tannin content, I would recommend a wooden bodied plane. It's kind of, uh, and I think they work better on green wood anyway than metal planes. Um, and, and a good oil rag, you know, take that plane apart when you're done for the day, clean it off, get all the, the moisture from the, uh, from the wood off of it and wipe it down with that, you know, oily rag, uh, to kind of keep the irons and everything from rusting because, the, uh, the moisture and the tannic acid in the wood will certainly cause tools to rust, and they can rust severely in just a couple of hours' time if, if left unattended. Our next question is a voicemail from new patron Alex Young, so let's listen to that. Hi, Bob. This is Alex Young. I had a question while I was listening to one of your podcasts. When you're gluing up panels and using a spring joint for one or two sections of the panel. That makes sense to me. But what happens when you have a larger panel that requires, you know, three or even four or five boards to be jointed together? Do you use a spring joint for all of them? If so, do you glue two boards together, let them dry, then glue the third or the fourth or the fifth? How does that work? Thanks. Bye. So spring joints for multiple boards. Um, in the rare instance that I use a spring joint, I actually don't use them very often. Um, but what you need to keep in mind is that when you're using a, a spring joint, there the spring is usually fairly minimal. Um, if you can, if if you're using a spring joint with a, a really heavy spring in it, 
Um, it's going to cause problems no matter whether you're using one board or, or 10 boards. Um, a, you know, you should really only be relieving the, uh, the joint by, you know, a, a thousandth, you know, maybe a couple thousandths of an inch. It's really just a couple of plane shavings uh, and a couple of smoother shavings at that. It's really not a lot of relief in that joint. And if you're finding that you're having trouble closing the joint, then you're probably springing it too much. You should be able to pretty much close the joint by hand, even with a spring joint. Um, if you can't, if you have to apply a lot of clamping pressure to close that spring joint, you're using too much spring in the joint. So it should be very subtle. Um, so in terms of gluing up, you know, multiple boards with a spring joint, you can really do it either way. I've done it both ways where, you know, I, I um, plane, the, plane all the spring in all the joints uh, ahead of time and then glue it all up at once. Or if it's a really complex, large piece, I might glue it up in uh, in separate pieces, you know, and do multiple glue ups, um, you know, glue two boards together, then glue, you know, another one on. Or, or if it's like four boards, do two assemblies of two boards and then glue those two assemblies together. Um, because it's it, it can just be easier if it's a large um, a large piece or a large assembly if you're doing like a dining table or something like that sometimes it can be easier um, to get things in clamps before the glue starts to set up especially if you're using hide glue um, so for me it doesn't really come down to whether or not I use a spring joint it's really how large the glue up is if I'm working on something that's going to take a lot of time to get all the glue on and get it in the clamps, then I'll do it in multiple glue ups. If it's a small tabletop, maybe I'm just gluing up three boards. I'll just knock them all out, you know, and do it all at once. What I will do is to make sure that I check each joint and I test each joint before um, I go ahead and and do the glue up and the clamping to make sure that it's going to close. So do a good dry fit. The one trick that you might want to think about is with doing a spring joint um, is to, if you're doing multiple boards, maybe not necessarily um, spring the inner board. So in other words, if you're doing a three board glue up, plane a little bit of spring in the two outer boards, but don't plane any in the center board. Leave that one perfectly dead straight um, because that'll help to close the joint a little bit better. If you're gonna do say something with four boards um, and, they're, and they're sizable, um, then I would say do the, the glue up separately for each one of them. And the reason is once you, you do the, um, the spring joints and you glue them together, you're flexing those boards to close them. So you could be changing the outside edges slightly. And then when you go to put those together in the middle, um, you could have too much spring and, and things might not close up for you and you may have to readjust those by doing the two glue ups separately, especially if they're, if, again, if it's a large glue up, you can do the two outside glue ups, you know, the two boards on, on each side and then redress that middle joint so that if it's, if things got kind of wonky when you glued up the first time, you have the opportunity to um, replane that joint before you glue the two halves together to make the, the full width. Um, you know, and I like to work with the widest boards that I can in most cases. So unless I'm doing something really huge, like a really big tabletop, um, I'm not finding myself gluing up more than four boards in most cases. 
Um, and even my four board, my four board glue ups are usually for things like dining tables, um, case sides, side tables. I'm trying to do those in no more than two boards in most cases. So, um, you know, really, I'm not working with multiple boards for a glue up unless I'm working with a really, really, really wide tabletop. So it's not too common of a an occurrence in my shop. Um, but yeah, I would, uh, you know, if the boards are narrow enough, go ahead and glue them all up at once uh, and make sure you just make sure you don't put too much spring in them where you're not going to be able to pull it out by hand um, or with very light clamping pressure. If you've got to put real heavy clamping pressure, you're probably using too much spring. So our last question for today comes from another new patron, Max Steenbach. Uh, and Max says, I'd like to get your, your take and advice on cambered irons. I like the idea of using a heavily cambered iron with my jack plane to prepare rough stock, but I'm without a grinder. Is there a way to achieve the 8 to 10 inch radius camber by hand? I can imagine using a file to shape the iron, but I'm not sure if this is a reasonable approach. And a follow-up question on your tri-jointer... On your joiner and smoothing planes, do you use a lighter camber or just round the edges with a file or on the sharpening stone? So you can certainly camber without um, without a grinder. The and, and this is kind of a timely question too because I'm I'm actually going to be doing some videos pretty soon on cambering with both with and without a, a grinder because um, I'm kind of I, I hate the, the use of the radius because it's so misleading. Um, to to talk about camber in terms of a radius, um, and that's really a lot of what the videos are going to be about. But just to kind of give you a brief overview, um, you know, when we start to talk about radius, that radius really changes a lot of things when we start to um, change the width of the plane iron. And I don't have the numbers in front of me. I actually did the calculation one day and figured it all out. But you know, an, an eight inch radius on a inch and three quarter inch a one and three quarter inch plane iron is going to call for much more projection than an eight inch radius on um, on a wider plane iron, or it might, actually might be the other way around. But anyway, when you change the width of the plane iron, it changes the width of the projection for the same radius. So I don't really like to talk about camber in terms of radius. I, I prefer to use you know just the projection. How much material do you want to take off? Are you looking to you know, really hog off material in, in soft wood where you might be able to take a 16th of an inch at a time, which is quite a bit, um, probably a little bit more than you're going to take off in most situations, maybe closer to a 32nd of an inch. Um, but regardless, you, you can camber without a grinder. You're going to need a fairly coarse stone. If you use oil stones, something like a, you know, a coarse, a really coarse um, crystalline stone, or, you know, like a silicon carbide, very coarse silicon carbide stone will do it. Um, you can use a, if you use water stones, a really coarse water stone. Um, and I wouldn't even worry about the stone dishing because essentially you're using that stone to create a camber anyway. So if the stone dishes, it's not a big deal. Or a fairly coarse diamond stone. And this is one of the situations where a honing guide actually does help. Um, so if you get a cheap side clamp honing guide with the, the little narrow, um, the little narrow wheel that it rides on, just put pressure on the corners of the iron and gradually you'll work that iron back and camber it down. Draw the camber on the edge of the iron and watch your line and just work the corners. Don't even touch the, the middle of the blade until you're getting closer and really just focus all your pressure 
on the corners of the blade as you start to um, move the the blade in the honing guide over your course's stone, and and it will um, it'll camber it. You know, you'll you'll be able to to get there. It might take a little bit of time. It's certainly going to take longer than it will with a grinder, but you can certainly do it. Um, I would recommend again the coarsest stone you can get. So like an extra coarse diamond stone would be a good one. Um, that's going to re- really remove material in a hurry. And when you have to put a heavy camber in, um, you know, you really want to try and remove that material quickly. So you can certainly just do it with a honing guide and a very coarse stone. Um, in terms of the tri or, or jointer plane and smoothing planes, um, I've done it both ways. Most of the time, I just kind of put a little extra pressure on the corners for my smoothing planes um, and and hone a little bit lower there. So I guess it's sort of a camber. Maybe it's just softening the corners. I don't know. I've never, I've never actually measured it. Um, for a triplane, I do camber. Um, it is less camber than what I put on my four plane or jack plane, but it is more camber than what I put on a smoothing plane. For a jointer plane, I actually um, sharpen those with the iron straight across. And I'm going to talk about why a little bit later in the show. It, it kind of ties into the, today's main topic. So um, so I'll talk about why I do that a little bit later. But but yes, I do camber in terms of triplane, smooth plane. I do camber them. Um, it's just less so than I do for my jack plane or four plane. So um, yeah, so that's it. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, and I certainly hope that you do, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is all about the names of the bench planes. Um, you know, there's there's lots of confusion when it comes to what bench planes are called, um, in large part due to Stanley's numbering system, because Stanley just kind of numbered theirs one through eight, um, and then they decided to give them names as well. Unfortunately, the names that Stanley gave them kind of got lost. Um, you know, by the time Stanley planes came al- around, much of the traditional work that was done that was traditionally done by the bench planes, you know, preparing rough, mainly preparing rough lumber. Um, most of that work was being done by machines. You know, the Stanley planes came around in the um, around the third quarter of the uh, the 19th century, the the 18 late 1800s, and by that time we were already you know neck deep in the industrial revolution, and for any major furniture work the lumber was already being prepared by machines. So um, there wasn't a whole lot of hand dressing of lumber going on. You know, instead, most hand planes were being used by house carpenters out in the field. They really weren't being used by furniture makers for, for milling rough lumber. So a lot of the traditional uses of the different planes was really starting to become lost knowledge. Um, and And when Stanley... At, you know, put names to their planes. It was really more marketing hype than anything, because um, a lot of the tools that you know that they were coming up with, you know, was really just about selling more tools, is what it came down to. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of that traditional knowledge was getting lost. So, 
it, what I want to do is just totally forget about the numbers. And I'll probably mention the numbers a little bit. But what I really want to do is focus on the traditional names of these planes. Um, now, in terms of dressing rough lumber, what we're usually using the bench planes for, there's three main planes. There's the smoothing plane, there is the four-planer jack plane, and there's the triplanar joiner plane. Those are the three that you're typically going to use. I want to start by actually talking about the simplest because there's the, there seems to be the least amount of confusion about this one because it's pretty straightforward, and, and that's the smoothing planes. Now, Stanley numbered you know their planes one through eight. Forget about all the ones that are in between and all the specialty planes that come after the eight. One through eight were the primary bench planes. Um, and for the most part, one through four were all smoothing planes, just different lengths and different width irons, but they were all intended for smoothing. And, you know, the smoothing plane is pretty simple. It's a short plane, it's a narrow plane, and it's meant for smoothing boards and taking care of localized tear out, localized areas of difficult grain. Um, so for that reason, they are typically short. Um, my opinion, the shorter, the better. Um, Stanley planes, you know, the most common ones, the number three and the four were about nine inches long, eight, eight to eight and a half to nine inches long. And with irons that are about an inch and three quarters to three to two inches wide. If you look at a lot of older wooden smoothing planes, two inches wide was, a you know, on the higher end. Um, there were some two and an eighth to two and a quarter inch, but those are, were much rarer than the two inch wide irons. Um, but they tended to be shorter. Seven to eight inches was more common for wooden smoothers. Um, and I think that shorter length is actually a benefit in a smoothing plane. So, uh, you know, it, it helps to get into those areas of localized tear out a little more. And one of the, my most favorite smoothing planes that I ever owned was an old wooden smoothing plane. Uh, it was about six and a half, six, somewhere between six and seven inches long. And I don't remember, it was pretty short. It was closer in size to a block plane with a, a narrow little iron. It was about an inch and a half or inch and five eighth inch wide iron. And it was an awesome little smoother, you know, for getting into tight little areas of, of rough grain and um, difficult grain and um, not having to worry about blending the surrounding area and flattening the surrounding area so much. So um, smoother for smoother, shorter really, I think really is better. Um, the next plane is, is that I want to talk about is one that has quite a bit of confusion and that's the four plane. Um, now Stanley called their number six, a four plane and they called their number five, a jack plane. And there, there tends to be a little bit of confusion around those two because some folks will say that the, um, the four plane, the Stanley number six was actually a short jointer. Um, and it can certainly be used as a short jointer if you set it up that way. And I'll talk about that a little bit later again, but the name four plane really, you know, Stanley naming their number six, a four plane was really, if you go back to the traditional use of the four plane, somewhat misleading because the number six is a really tough plane to use as a traditional four plane. Um, and if you, you know, look for the definition of the traditional four plane, it is quite easy to find if you go back to a period where they were using hand planes for all of their work back before the age of the, you know, milling machines. The, one of the first references that I ever found was Randall Holm in 1688. 
and I'll just read through his definition of the foreplane real quick. Uh, he says the second sort of plane is called the foreplane and of some, the former or the coarse plane, because it is used to take off the roughness of the timber before it be worked with the jointer or smooth plane. And for that end, the edge of the iron or bit is not ground upon a straight as other planes are, but rises with a convex arch in the middle of it and is set also more ranker and further out of the mouth in the sole of the stock than any other bits or irons are. So let's put that in modern day English. Essentially what he's saying is it's called a four plane or coarse plane because it's used to take off the roughness of the timber before it is worked with the joiner or smooth plane. So if a jointer, if a four plane were intended to be a short jointer, it would not be used for taking off the roughness of the timber. And it wouldn't be called, you know, and they're specifically saying, and if you look in Moxon as well, Joseph Moxon in, in 1703, Joseph Moxon says the four plane is called a four plane because it is used before the other planes. So it is the first plane you would use in the process. Now, Randall Holm goes on to say that you know, it is not ground straight. The iron is not ground straight as the other planes are, meaning the jointer or smoothing plane. So Randall Holm is suggesting that the jointer and smoothing planes are ground with straight irons, but rises with a convex arch in the middle. So it's, it's cambered and is also set more ranker and further out of the mouth in the sole of the stock set for a deeper cut. So the four plane has a cambered iron. It's set for a deep cut and it's used to take off the roughness of the timber. Pretty straightforward. Um, for whatever reason, there still seems to be some confusion around the four plane. And again, I think it really comes down to um, Stanley's, you know, misrepresentation of the tool, because if you've ever actually tried to use a Stanley number six as a roughing tool, that thing will wear you out. It's just way too heavy which is why I always recommend that for a jack plane or a four plane, um, people go with wooden planes because they, they tend to be much lighter. You can take a much heavier cut with them and work much faster with, you know, getting much less tired um, with, throughout the process. But here's the interesting thing. If you look in Moxon, if you look in Randall Home, they also say that the jack plane, so-called by the carpenter, is the same that the joiners call the four plane. So it's pretty much spelled out that the jack plane and the four plane are the same tool. The carpenters called it a jack plane. The joiners called it a four plane. Other than that, they're set up the same. They're used the same. So I tend to use the terms jack plane and four plane interchangeably because that was traditional for the period. And that's how the tools were intended. The jack plane, the four plane intended to be essentially the same tool, um, used for roughing, heavily cambered iron, thick cut. Um, the, the name, again, is, is derived from the setup and the use, not from the length and the iron width, <clears throat> excuse me, as Stanley would have you believe. The traditional four plane was, you know, somewhere between 14 and 18 inches long and usually had an iron that was anywhere from an inch and three quarter to two and a quarter inches wide. But it was nowhere near as heavy a tool as the Stanley number six is. Um, so I think that's where the four plane kind of, of got a bad name and a bad rap again is from Stanley. But if you just keep in mind that the four plane or jack plane is a coarse plane, it has a heavily cambered iron. It's meant for a deep cut and initial planing of rough lumber. 
you'll be set. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a Stanley number five, um, a wooden jack plane, a wooden four plane, what have you, you'll understand what the tool was intended to do. It is the first plane that you use before the joiner or smoother. The, the one now that I think causes the, the most confusion is when you start to get into the triplane and the jointer plane, um, because there's a lot of conflicting information on how these tools are set up. Um, if you look at, let's say, Nicholson, for example, Peter Nicholson in his 1845 book, he, he does provide us with a definition of both planes. What he says for the triplane is that it is used to reduce the ridges made by the jack plane and to straighten the stuff. For this purpose, it is both longer and broader, and the edge of the iron is less convex and set with less projection. Pretty, you know, pretty simple definition, right? It's longer than a four-plane or jack plane. It is wider than a four-plane or jack plane. It has less camber, and it's set for a finer cut. So I think that's that's pretty pretty simple. He does say the sharpening of the iron in operation of planing is much the same as that of the jack plane. In essence, it has a cambered iron. It's just not quite as cambered and it's set for a finer cut and it's used for straightening the stuff, straightening the wood. Um, so it is another plane ground with a convex cambered edge so that the corners don't dig in. It's just less so than the jack plane and set for a finer cut. And that way it, it helps to flatten its length, helps to flatten the wood that we're working on and straighten edges. But he says something else interesting because he talks about the jointer plane. And he says that the jointer plane is principally for planing straight edges and the edges of boards so as to make them join together. This operation is called shooting and the edge itself is said to be shot. The shaving has taken the whole length in finishing the joint or narrow surface. So when he talks about the joiner plane, he's actually referring specifically, calling out the narrow edges of the board when there is an intent to make an edge-to-edge -edge glue joint between the two boards. So if you think about that for a second, what Nicholson is actually saying is that the triplane and the jointer plane are actually two different planes. So this gets kind of interesting because where... Randall Holm and, and Joseph Moxon talked about the four plane and the jack plane saying, yeah, they're, you know, the carpenters call them one thing, the joiners call them something else, but they're essentially the same, same tool. Nicholson, when he talks about the, the jointer plane and the triplane actually calls out that these are different tools. The triplane is used with a camber and for straightening and flattening faces of a board. The jointer plane is used primarily on the edge when you're going to make a glue joint. And what you'll find if you start to research into this, that there are actually some references that refer to joiner planes as gluing jointers. And they will list in inventories, they will list a separate um, triplane and a separate joiner plane. So I came to using my joiner plane differently from my triplane uh, years ago when I really started to research a lot of these historical practices and where I mentioned before, I grind and hone my triplane with a slight camber so that I can remove the work left from the foreplane, the deeper scallops, 
replacing them with much shallower scallops and also flattening and straightening faces of boards. But what I found is that 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 cambered iron is also really great for making the edges of boards squared. Um, and I, I, I'm not going to get into the technique for that today, but um, in essence, just know that by using the cambered iron, you can take a thicker shaving on part of the board, on part of the edge than the other so that you can, you can more easily bring a board into square, the edge of the board. Um, the problem is by using that cambered iron, you could also be introducing a slight bit of concavity into the edge of that board. And if you need to make a glue joint, you really want the edges of that board coming together as tightly as possible. So I had some conversations with a, a friend years ago talking about these tools, and we both kind of came to the conclusion independently that, you know, the jointer plane is maybe it's not really a bench plane if it's set up the way that a lot of these older texts are talking about. Maybe it really belongs more with the joinery planes, such as your rabbit planes, your dado planes. Those tools are all sharpened with an iron that is dead straight. Well, if the jointer plane then is more of a joinery plane than it is a, um, a bench plane, a facing plane, because, as Nicholson says, it's meant primarily for edges, then what if you what if the joint the jointer was really meant to be uh, sharpened with a dead straight iron? So I started doing that. I had separate planes. I had a triplane that I used for planing faces and for squaring the edge of a board. But I had a separate jointer that I actually ground with a dead straight iron that I used for doing things like match planing and getting the edge of a board ready to be glued together to the edge of another board for a glue joint. And what I found was that by taking that one or two passes, final passes with the joiner plane, and I didn't do a lot of work with the joiner. Again, most of the work was done with the, um, with the triplane, with the cambered iron. But by switching to a jointer plane with a dead straight flat iron and making, you know, maybe two or three passes right before glue up, it would make those edges dead straight and it would make the glue joints come together so seamlessly that the joint would practically disappear even more so than I could with my triplane. So I started setting up my jointer plane with a dead straight iron and, and I've been doing that ever since for a plane that I'm going to be using for planing um, edges. And the beauty of that is if you match plane, that is plane, um, plane, plane your two edges together. You know, if you're going to make a glue joint uh, between two boards, you can set those two boards up and then kind of close them up, close them like a book and plane the two edges simultaneously. By using a plane with a dead straight iron, it makes a dead straight flat joint. And it doesn't so much matter if those boards are at planed at 90 degrees, as long as they're dead straight and flat and you get a really tight, seamless glue joint that way. Um, and I started doing that with the straight iron and the joiner, and it really made an improvement in my work. So uh, I've been, for the most part, doing that ever since. Um, so that those two planes, to me, are actually separate when we talk about the joiner and the triplane. Now, you can certainly use a single plane for both um, by just softening the corners of the iron instead of actually grinding it with a camber. 
I have two separate planes. I have my old wooden triplane that I have a camber ground into. Um, and I also have an iron, um, number eight size plane, um, that I use as my quote unquote gluing joiner. And that plane, um, is not cambered at all. It is just, um, the, the corners are slightly softened. Um, but for the most part it is, it is honed straight across so that I can use it, um, as a gluing, gluing plane to make it a dead flat edge joint. So I hope that cleared up some of the, uh, any confusion you might have had about the bench planes. I know there's uh, so much information and so much conflicting information out there. Sometimes it's hard to wade through it all, but I like to uh, just try and go back to the oldest sources I can find uh, because I find they tend to be more consistent with each other. And, uh, and those sources are less interested in marketing tools and more interested in educating the craftsmen. So uh, in my mind, they're a little bit more reliable of a source than looking at a tool catalog uh, from a company whose main goal was to sell tools, not so much educate the person using them. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you for joining me and allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because the show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash HTT023. In the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to in today's show. And you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody.